Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning. Um, thank you guys for your warm welcome. I um, am kind of wearing two hats as I preach this morning. One is just a friend of the church, and Nick has given a lot of background information in that. But another is the regional director of an organization called Foster the City. Uh, Mercy Commons is one of the first partners in Southern California uh, with our organization. And um, I'm going to set my timer here just to make sure we stay on track. Um, And Foster the City is really a coalition of churches. And these churches together agree that we are going to continue to help raise up and recruit foster families And then we're going to wrap those families with a system of support. And so that's really all Foster the City does is we connect churches to one another so they can lock arms and they can be in an agreement to say, this is something the church has been called to. It's something that we want to keep a priority. And so we are not only going to recruit foster families, but we are going to wrap them with a group of support friends. And those support friend teams are around four people, and they just provide the practical meals, babysitting, encouragement that's really necessary uh, to sustain doing foster care. You know, the national average is only 40% of foster parents make it out of their first year. 40%. So that means 60% of foster... We can hold off on that slide. Thanks, though. Only six... That means 60% of foster parents get their home ready, go through the long process of certification, get placed with a child and say, this is too hard. I can't do this. I didn't sign up to take on so much trauma. I feel so isolated and alone. And so what we want to do is flip that statistic. And we have for Foster the City families, 93% of them make it through their first year. And that's not because we have some magical secret that bottled up somewhere. That is just what happens when you feel loved and supported. When there's a supportive community around you, you have what it takes to continue to foster. And I want to start by just uh, thanking the three advocates in your community. So Foster the City cannot exist if there isn't someone leading the church from inside the church. And normally we look for one or maybe two advocates, but Mercy Commons right away has put forward three leaders for this uh, ministry in your church. So I would like to honor Hannah Corey, yeah. Megan Newell, and Betsy Still. They are going to be your three go-to people as you guys move forward in loving on the many foster families you have here in this community, uh, but additionally wrapping them with a supportive community so they feel loved in what God's called them to do. You know, I didn't always want to be a foster parent. Um, My wife and I, we've been doing foster care for the last four years, and we've adopted our oldest daughter through foster care, and we've had a bunch of foster kids over the last several years, but I didn't always want to do that. In fact, when Stacy came to me and said, how about we consider being foster parents, that was like a hard no for me. (laughs) I had felt called to adopt, but foster care seemed so much harder than adoption to me. It felt more vulnerable, more risky, even more painful. I couldn't imagine having a child in my home that I would care for and pour myself out um, towards only to have them leave. That just felt too painful. 
But over time, God began to chisel away at my resistance. And one of the biggest ways that happened was Stacy and I went to this conference. And this conference was called Empowered to Connect. And it was specifically for parents who are parenting kids from hard places. Um, they have uh, extreme behavioral issues or they come from the foster care system. And one of the speakers got up and just began to explain um, that babies have been endowed with God with a profound, complex communication system. It's called crying. <laughs> and there are different cries, and moms and dads in here, you know the different cries, don't you? There's a cry that's like, meh, uh, and that's like, hey, I'm starting to get hungry. You better think about feeding me. Then there's the cry that like, I got a big load, and you better take care of this thing. It's more like, like, uh, like how long am I going to sit in this thing? Let's go. Get this diaper off me. And then there's that cry where you let your child get overtired, and they are telling you, prepare for battle. Because the next hour of your life is going to be miserable. And even a simple thing as a cry is actually filled with all these different types of communication. Now, what I, what I didn't realize is when a baby is crying, their brain is on fire. Like, they are escalated and everything in their system, their fight, flight, or freeze response system is fired up. And they are living in a state of stress. And when a caregiver goes to meet that need, whether that's holding that baby or feeding that baby, they put out the fire that is in that child's brain. And when they do this over and over and over, they are communicating two things to the child. The first thing they're communicating is you have value. You have value because you have a voice and you expressed you had a need into the cosmos, <laughs> and it elicited someone to come and care for you. That's powerful, isn't that? So the child begins, even from a week old, to learn, I have value. The second thing children learn when they cry and their need is met is that people can be trusted. Because I cried and somebody came to me and they met my need. Now what I learned next forever changed the way I thought about children. What happens when a child doesn't have a consistent and compassionate response to their crying? What happens when they cry and their need goes unmet for a sustained amount of time? Or worse, what happens when they cry and their need is met but without compassion? They learn two things about the world. I don't have value and people can't be trusted. I don't have value and people can't be trusted. Dozens and dozens of times each day, that experience is affirmed for that child. And this next slide here is some statistics, and these statistics in isolation don't make sense, but when you realize these kids had needs and they weren't met consistently, the question is, what happens when a child whose experience told them over and over, you have no value and people can't be trusted? What happens when they grow up? Well, only 3% of them earn a college degree. 71% of girls in foster care are pregnant by the age of 21. 50% of children who ate out of the foster care system develop substance dependence. And the list goes on and on and on. We are seeing extreme societal brokenness from emancipated foster youth. And at the heart of it, they are kids who never got the care that God had intended them to receive. 
And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to show how I am convinced that the church is called to affirm in these children that you have value and people can be trusted. Over and over again, the church is called to say you have value and people can be trusted. Specifically, we are called to care for vulnerable children because this is the mandate that God has given the church to rule over his creation, and it's the very means by which Satan is disarmed. The power that Satan has over these kids' lives is disarmed. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 8. If you want to turn with me to Psalm chapter 8, we'll also have the words on the screen in the ESV. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you for this opportunity to look at Psalm 8 and to think about its application in the context of foster care. Spirit, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us as we receive your word. And I pray that you would give us the courage to obey your word wherever it may lead us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the most immediately evident thing about this psalm is that it's about the majesty of God. It's about God's reputation in all of the earth. It's about his nobility and his wisdom and his glory and his power. And David highlights this with contrasting pictures. As one commentary said, he does this by pointing, quote, to the strong and the weak, the spectacular and the obscure, the many and the few. In fact, if you are reading along well with Psalm 8, you should have a sore neck by the end of it. After you get done reading Psalm 8 well, you should be like, man, my neck. I need to go to the chiropractor. Because he has you look up and down three times. Three times he has you look all the way up to the heavens, and then he'll have you look all the way back down to the dust. So in verse 1, he says, your glory is above the heavens. Not just the heavens, above the heavens. I mean, your neck is just screaming right now because you're looking all the way back. And then he brings you all the way down to a baby and an infant. Verse 3, he talks about the moon and the stars. And then he looks down at man. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? In verse 5, he calls your attention to the heavenly beings. And then he brings you back down to say that man was made a little lower. Why is David having us look all the way up to have us look all the way down. Well, as beloved Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner explains, he says he's doing this because God is revealing, quote, the unexpectedness of his ways. I love that word, the unexpectedness of his way. 
To the reader's great surprise, the fullest expression of God's majesty is not in the moon, it's not in the stars, it's not in the heavens. To the reader's great surprise, the fullest picture of God's glory is not even angels or above the heavens. It is children and the dominion God has given mankind to rule over the earth. That is the greatest expression of God's majesty and his power and his nobility and his glory. So the first thing we see is that God reveals his majesty unexpectedly by establishing strength through babies. God reveals his majesty unexpectedly by establishing strength through babies. Verse 2 tells us that God's preferred method of silencing his enemies is baby and infants. And not only that, but it's the means by which God establishes his strength. Now that is a crazy statement. There isn't like, oh, this makes sense. In the ancient Near East, they thought babies were powerful and they believe they present the strength of gods. No, no, no. Ancient and modern readers are like, what the heck? Strength? Babies? And it's utterly shocking because, number one, infants are not strong, but infants are totally and completely dependent. They are helpless. In fact, if you brought a baby into the battlefield, it would be a name of a great sitcom, but not a good military strategy, right? If you brought a baby in the battlefield, you would be delayed. You'd be slowed down. How on earth is God establishing strength over his enemies through babies and infants? And it's even additionally shocking because God does establish his strength cosmically all the time throughout Scripture. Think about when God miraculously struck an entire army with blindness. Think about when he prolonged the sun to give Israel the victory. Think about when he rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about when he opened up the earth to judge his people. The thing is that God can and does use traditional power and force and angels and the heavens to establish his strength. Yet as we learn in Psalm 8, that is not the primary way he establishes strength. The primary way is through babies and infants. But the question for us is how? How is that possible? Well, firstly, I think that happens through a blessed lineage of miraculous fertility. Through a blessed lineage of miraculous fertility. We could go all the way back to Genesis 3, but let's go to Genesis 12. God calls this guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, prepare, because I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to blow your mind. Right? I'm going to give you a bunch of land. I'm going to give you a bunch of descendants, and it's going to be amazing. Except there's one small little problem with God's plan. One little kind of thing he, he overlooked. First of all, Abram's wife Sarah is infertile. She hasn't been able to have kids for years. But not only is she struggling with infertility, she's postmenopausal. It's kind of like, really, God, did you not think that was important to this promise to create a great nation and create all of these children? And at different times, Sarah's going to put forth a different strategy, and Abraham's going to put forth a different strategy. Sarah hopes in a different womb, right? Sarah says, man, if I can't conceive, what about my servant? But Abram actually hopes in a different son. 
he goes before God and he says, this isn't working out. Let Ishmael, my son, live before you. And this wasn't just one generation. They got over the speed bump and they kept going. Their daughter-in-law struggled with infertility, Rebecca. Their great-granddaughter-in-law struggled with infertility, Rachel. This was a generational, natural problem, infertility in the family. And so the question all along is, how is God going to establish his promise? Well, he does it not through force, but through miraculous conception. The Bible miraculously allows Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel to continue to bear children into this line. And not only that, but that continues throughout the whole Old Testament, culminating in the Virgin Mary, the, the biggest miracle of all time, giving birth to the son of David, fulfilling the promise that was given to Abraham long ago. And this is how God establishes his strength. It was the birth of Christ that brought about redemption and salvation for the whole world. The strongest act of love you can imagine came through a blessed lineage of miraculous fertility. But not only that, I think the second way in a more broad way is through the unsuspecting war cries of babies. Isn't that just like, men, war cries of babies. You feel that? You feel that at three in the morning? Um, It hurts at three in the morning. Feels all right right now. If you look throughout scripture, anytime you see a child, Satan's plan is to isolate that child and bring them into isolation that leads to death throughout the whole scripture. And anytime you see a child in scripture, God's plan is always relationship that leads to life. So Satan's plan is to isolate children and then literally kill them. God's plan is to draw children to himself and bring them to a place of life. Think for me quickly, one illustration is the story of Moses. Moses was a Hebrew who was born in a time where Israel was enslaved to a wicked king named Pharaoh. And in scripture, theologically, he is the embodiment of all evil. And Pharaoh decrees that all male children will be killed, that they will be taken away from their mom, isolation, and they will be drowned. But what is God's decree over Moses' life? That he will be saved and reunited with his mom. You guys see that? Isolation leading to death, relationship leading to life, over and over and over Professor of Biblical Studies at Midwestern Seminary, Dr. Todd Shipman, says it this way, and we have the quote here. The entire canon of Scripture seems, sees the emergence of life as a threat to the principalities and powers. It is no surprise, then, that God's enemies would seek to destroy. The devil's chief strategy is always to ruin relationships. That is the devil's chief strategy. It is always to ruin relationship. If he cannot kill a child, as God frequently prevents him from doing, his plan B is to destroy all of that child's relationships and to bring them into isolation so he can kill them through isolation. This has dramatic implications on foster care, doesn't it? 
when we see what's happening to these kids, when we see what's happening in their families, when we see the kingdom advancement of Satan on the family and children are removed, we realize that their life is being ruined not by mom and dad, but by principalities and powers. Church, this is so important because our culture is constantly conditioning us to see the parents who abuse or neglect or sometimes who abuse and neglect their kids to see them as the enemy. Is to see, well, how could they do that? Why could they do that? But if we want to be biblical people, we have to see behind those parents and see that there is a greater enemy who is destroying the whole family through addiction and through generational patterns and through all of these things, the enemy is coming to destroy that family so the child can be isolated so he, the enemy can reign over their life. But if you were to rewind the clock back on almost all of these parents and you were to go back to their childhood, you know what you would observe? You would observe a little three-year-old kid who's getting insignificant and inconsistent care, and their experience is affirming to them over and over and over again, I don't have value, and people can't be trusted. I don't have value, and people can't be trusted. And that is the enemy's work. But this also means that the church has to be pro-reunification. Reunification is when a child goes back to their mom and dad. And it is hard to be pro-reunification. Don't tell me it's not hard. I have wept on my bed because it is hard. I've wept on my bed because children I've loved for 14 months left my house to go to a family member. Reunification is hard, but it is the gospel. Because God is not wanting to bless and love this child only. God is after the whole family. And so more than anyone engaged in foster care, the church needs to champion reunification because our God is bigger than the child being spared from danger. Our God is big enough to restore the entire family and that is our beating heart in foster care is that these kids end up back with their family members. On October 15th last year, we were placed with this beautiful two-year-old girl. She was shy and sweet, and cuddly, and so uncoordinated. Oh my gosh, guys. We have never had a child fall so frequently as this little child. But the reason she was removed was because her mom, and her grandma, and her great-grandma got in a physical altercation that landed all of them in jail. Generational dysfunction. Satan tinkering and ruining and destroying the family. Mother, child to mother, mother to grandma, grandma to great-grandma. And this ruined relationship led to this child entering in the foster care system. And it was so traumatic. I mean, can you even imagine observing a physical altercation with the people you love, police officers showing up, taking you away and dropping you off at a stranger's house. There is no child in foster care that has not been traumatized in some way. Even the act of being removed from your family, temporary, is traumatic. And for a couple weeks, we would just hold her and she would just cry out over and over, Mama, Grammy, Mama, Grammy over and over, and it was heartbreaking. 
And if a child is in foster care, it is because Satan has been at work for years destroying that family. You know, kids who are in foster care are 2.5 times more likely to develop PTSD than war veterans. Isn't that crazy? They're living in such a chronic state of stress that it just absolutely overwhelms them. And that is why foster care is war. That is why we need to see Satan as the chief enemy ruining relationships and not these parents. Listen again to how Dr. Chapman says it. In the psalmist's mind, suckling children in the sounds of a church nursery are war cries of God's greatness. How so? God is the creator of life, accomplishing a feat that none of his foes could replicate. Since babies bear the image of God, even a crying baby shuts the mouths of any boastful opponents exalting themselves in God's presence. And there are boastful opponents who are exalting themselves over the lives of kids in foster care. Satan says over the lives of these children, I've won. I've destroyed the family. I've isolated them from their mom and their dad. But man, when you come to church and you have the privilege of having foster children in the room like you do today, and you sing about the truth of God's love, you are establishing strength over Satan's enemies. You are saying, Satan, you have lied to this child. You've told them they don't have value. You've isolated them. But when they're here, when they're at Mercy Commons, they're a part of a family. And we are going to sing the truth of God's love over these kids because their experience has lied to them. And there is a God who says you have value and people can be trusted. When you work in children's ministry and you teach a foster kid a lesson about Jesus, you are establishing the strength of God over his enemies. When you bring a meal or spend time with a foster kid in this community, you are establishing God's strength over his enemies. And you, when you welcome a foster child into your home, imitating the radical and sacrificial love of Christ, you are establishing God's strength over his enemies. The second thing I want you guys to see is that God reveals his majesty unexpectedly by appointing humanity to rule creation. He establishes his majesty unexpectedly by appointing humanity to read over creation. Verse 3, when I look to your heavens, to the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion or rule or authority over all the works of your hands. See, David is marveling here at the appointment of humanity to rule over the earth. He's particularly marveling because he says, man, spiritual beings are much better suited to rule over earth, aren't they? He's saying, man, why didn't angels get dominion over the earth? This is backwards, God. Seriously? I like bleed and stuff. I need, I need to sleep. I'm dependent on food. I'm such a frail 
person and you chose me to rule and reign over creation opposed to the angels? I mean, think about it. Angels can exist in two dimensions. That's pretty cool. That fully in the spiritual dimension, fully in the physical dimension, they are much more powerful. Anytime an angel shows up in scripture, people just like hit the deck, like in absolute and total fear. And they perfectly carry out the will of God. Perfectly. If God says something, they are messengers of God's will. So David is marveling, like, this is crazy. I have been given dominion over the earth. It's up to me to order and rule things. It's up to me to bring about God's kingdom, not the angels. The angels are here to back me up. I'm the one who's been exalted in creation to rule and to reign. This is crazy. In spite of all of our disadvantages, God chose this specific task and gave it to humanity. I love how author and pastor Tim Keller summarizes Psalm 8. He says this, The astonishment of the psalmist should be ours. Why should God care about us? Here's the answer. Because he has made us in his image and given us the world he created to care for as his agents. Living with care for the land, the sea, the air, and all who are there, and doing justice for every human being stamped with his image brings God glory. We are made in God's image so that we would be equipped to act on God's behalf to bring justice to every human being. Now the implications of this on foster care are immense. That means kids in the foster care system fall under our domain. You realize that? That if you have been set up to rule over creation, especially God's elect church that he fills with his spirit to carry out his will, we have been tasked to bring about justice for every human being stamped with God's image. That is a privilege and one heck of a responsibility. And I'm not saying down with the state. Let's tear down social services and create our own social services. Let me just tell you, that will be a real disaster. And we will fall down our face. I mean, the things that social workers have to do are amazing. And we partner with social workers. But ultimately, what these kids need is a family. And a social worker will tell you that ten times over. And God has said, man, I have appointed you to rule and reign and bring justice over creation. And doesn't it make so much sense Who else would be aware that spiritual forces are behind the destruction of the family? And who else would be equipped with the very power to overcome those spiritual forces? The church is uniquely positioned to care for foster children. We are the ones who are spiritually orphaned, yet now adopted by God into his family. We are the ones with a traumatic past of sin and loss that God graciously took on himself. We are the ones who can give of ourselves without promise of return because Christ has given himself to us. We are the ones who were in need of a home when God graciously welcomed us in, and we are the ones equipped with a power beyond ourselves through the Spirit. Mercy Commons, God has equipped you to care for kids in the foster care system. And you are doing a fantastic job. I love hearing about how many foster families are stepping forward and 
how quickly this community is to support those who are fostering. Let me invite you to connect that to a bigger story. You, when you gather, when you hold a foster kid during worship, when you bring a meal to a foster parent's house, you are not just supporting them with a meal, which they are very grateful for, trust me. You are saying to Satan, your will for this child will not come to pass. This child has a value, and this child will be connected relationally because they are loved. There are about 2,000 children in Orange County foster care system alone. 2,000 kids in care. And that number pales in comparison to the 34,000 children in L.A. County's foster care system. There are more children in L.A. County alone than any entire state in the U.S. Church, you are in the epicenter of the child welfare crisis in America. It is right here. It's in our backyard, and we are equipped to do something about it. Now, I am not asking you to love all 36,000 of those children. You couldn't possibly do that. But I am asking you to ask, what can I do? What can I do to bring God's will, to rule, to order creation in the way that I've been called to, to establish God's strength in his glory? For my wife and I right now, we have room for one foster kid. And so we have the most adorable 11-month-old little foster daughter. And we are caring for her and loving her and supporting reunification the best way we can. But what about for you? Some of you, God is calling to foster. And that's awesome. It is one of the greatest privileges of life to care for these kids in foster care. And maybe you say you don't have enough room. Well, the county will let you put four kids in one bedroom. Now, I'm not recommending that. (laughs) I'm just here to deliver the news of what you can do. And maybe finances seem like an obstacle, but the the county also gives you a generous stipend to cover the child's needs just to remove an obstacle from loving people caring for these kids. And maybe it's not being a foster family. Maybe in this season you can become a support friend. Maybe you can wrap around one of the several families in this community that's fostering. And you can bring them a meal once a month. And you can watch their kids once a month. But not just to, to, to do it, but to prayerfully bring them into your home and to love on them and to pray for them. And to give foster parents the much-needed date night to replenish and connect with, in the midst of all the trauma that they're carrying for this child. Man, I... My wife and I have a group of support friends, and it has just been an absolute game changer for us. The other day, we had a support friend dropping off a meal, and normally uh, we'd be busy like cooking food and just preparing the house and stuff for the evening, but instead we were able to go on a family walk. And so we just went on this 25-minute, slow, connected family walk. And as we came around the corner to our house, our support friend pulled up with our dinner. And I was just overwhelmed with thankfulness. Like, thank you for these friends. Because what these kids need is time to connect relationally. That is what's going to bring healing. That's what's going to bring wholeness. And the support friend community says, hey, let me take care of some of the practical daily things that have to get done so you are freed up to do the meaningful, deep work of connecting with your children and loving on them so they can heal. I want to close with just a brief story of something that really amazing happened to my wife and I. In February 1st of 2019, my wife and I were able to 
adopt our daughter, Nora Grace, who's right there in Auntie Alex's lap. You want to say hi, Nora? Put your hand up. Hi. (laughs) And a lot of you, or many of you, were actually there at her party where we just celebrated this amazing moment. But God had, in his providence, lined up a few things. One thing he lined up was the same day that we adopted Nora Grace, we got to participate in our foster son being reunified with his mom. Talk about an emotional day. (laughs) Literally the same day. And as we were thinking about just how God had lined everything up, we thought, what if we morphed our adoption party into half adoption party, half celebrating our foster son and his mom? for being reunified. And so we invited her and we invited our foster son to the party. And it wasn't equal parts, but we did take a moment where we brought up our foster son and his mom. And Stacy and I just honored her for all the hard work that she had done for accomplishing her case plan, for battling for sobriety, just all of these amazing things. And our community stood up and applauded her. And She was so overwhelmed with the kindness and the glory of God in that moment. She just bit, she buried her face in her hands and just wept uncontrollably as the community around her declared to this mom who would work so hard to get her kid back, you have value and people can be trusted. It was, I was like, am I dead? Is this eternity? Like, (laughs) Is God's kingdom fully inaugurated in this actual moment? It was so beautiful and so sweet. And this morning as the music team comes up, I first just want to ask, what has God given you dominion over in your life right now that you can bring justice to? Maybe that's something in your family. Maybe that's something in your workplace. Maybe that's something in your neighborhood. God has asked you, appointed you, equipped you to rule over his creation. And so what right now can you do to bring justice to the area God has given you authority over? And secondly, I would love, there's a table out in the meeting area, a Foster the City table, and your advocates here are going to be back there. And I would just invite you guys to take the next step to learn more. The next step is just to fill out a card so we can have your information and keep you up to date on things that are happening and there is an interest meeting next Saturday at 9.30 at Southlands Church. And if you are at all interested in even just learning more about foster care or becoming a support friend, we would love for you guys to show up for that meeting. But fill out that next step cards because there's other meetings we could tell you about. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for this church. Thank you, God, that you have uniquely equipped and anointed them to care for children in the foster care system. Thank you, God, that you've chosen us to rule over your creation, not as those who domineer or do it for self-promotion, but those who humbly come as servants and to submit themselves to the will of God so that your word and your decrees and your ordering of things would be done. God, I pray for this church. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray that you would send them out as they gather each Sunday, that they would be refreshed, that there would be a fresh commissioning, that they would be reminded that Christ is with them and the spirit is inside of them and the Father is for them and they they can leave this gym with everything they need to do justice and to walk humbly and to show mercy to their neighbors, God. 
I pray, God, for more of your anointing on this church. God, I pray for more people to be blessed and overwhelmed with a sense of the love of the Father through these men and women. And God, we pray for the children of our community. Lord, we pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would watch over them. We pray that all kids at Mercy Commons would grow up with a fear of the Lord. God, that they would love you and they would devote their lives to you even from a young age. I pray for little kids to come forward with prophetic words. I pray for moments where children Signal to their parents there's people they should be praying for. God, I pray that you would infill the kids at this church, God, that they would declare your gospel and they would be filled with your presence. Lord, would you do this all by your mighty spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.